for the sake of the many of you who have not been with us during our seven previous years of study. So what I thought I would start out this year's study with a review of the past seven years, kind of a jet tour through the Lord's life. All right, now when we first began our Life of Christ study, we asked a very basic question. And that question was, why is Jesus' life worth studying? That's a very good question, especially if you're going to spend eight years of your life doing it, right? Is his worth, life really worth studying? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely his life is worth studying because his life is the one life which made eternal life possible for all lives. Amen. The impact that this one man's life had, not only upon the world and its history, but upon literally millions and millions of individuals, like many of us, I hope all of us in this room this morning, is the most amazing and miraculous truth of all history. The historian Phyllis Schaff said this about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, quote, this Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on human and divine things than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet without writing a single line. You know, the Lord never wrote a single word. Of course, we know he wrote the divinely inspired word of God, didn't he? But he never actually sat down with a pen. Once he scribbled in the sand, didn't he? We don't quite know what he wrote. But he never wrote a book. He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. And then another man, and you have this one in your um, notes that we passed out today. I think Peggy gave me this years ago when we first started the study. A man by the name of Francis A. I mean James A. Francis wrote a small literary piece about Christ, which is entitled One Solitary Life, and you can read along with me. It goes like this. Here is a young man who was born in, a, in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran as he endured the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 
19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of prog progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as that one solitary life. So is his life worth studying, do you think, would you say? I would, definitely. The uniqueness of this one solitary life alone makes it worth our time to study. Now for Christians who believe in the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, the importance of studying his life is twofold. It not only helps us to increase our faith in him by causing us to know him better, you know, to know the Lord Jesus Christ better is to trust him more, isn't it? To know him better and his character, his attributes, is to trust him more. But it also causes us, not only does it cause us to trust him more, to have greater faith in him, but it causes us, while we're looking at him and studying him, it causes us to grow in our own Christ-likeness. We grow spiritually as we progressively attain the mind of Christ. In other words, the more we stare at him and contemplate his every word and action, then, and we're not even aware of this, but the more we become like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, like a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glass or the mirror into which we are looking in this verse speaks of what? What's this man looking at? The Word of God here is referred to, or the mirror symbolizes the Word of God. When we look into the Word of God, with open face. Now, what do you suppose that might mean, with open face? It means with your open heart, with, with sincerity, with honesty, exactly, with honest openness before God. When we look into that mirror of his word with honesty, openness, then we see what? The glory of the Lord. We see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And then we are gradually transformed into Christ's image. And this whole process of being gradually transformed into the image of Christ, becoming more Christ-like, is called what? Sanctification. And it is a lifelong process. Because the Lord Jesus wants his followers to reflect him to the world so that others will behold his glory in them, and then, because of that, be drawn to him in salvation. You and I, if you call yourself a Christian, we are then under obligation to study his life in detail so that we do become more like him. You will not become more like him with just a superficial five-minute devotion. I mean, you will, but not very much. Superficial little five-minute devotional in the morning. To really become Christ-like, you need to dig deeper. You need to get into the meat of the world, word, get off the milk, 
stop being a baby Christian and get into the meat. And that's what this ministry is dedicated to, is getting into the meat of the word. Now, some people might question the validity. I hope none of you in this room, but other people might question the validity of studying the life of a man whom they question historically. Have you ever met anybody who actually questions that Jesus Christ was an actual figure in history? I have. I've met people like that. Said, so, well, how do we know he even really existed? There are many people who in ignorance think that the Bible is the only supportive document that there is to verify the historicity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they think that the Bible is the only historical evidence available to demonstrate that there really was such a man in history past named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in our early life of Christ study, we showed, and this was way back in lesson number one, we showed that this is not the case at all. In fact, there is much, more than you would probably imagine, there is much historical documentation available apart from the Bible, which does support the historicity of Christ. Some of that documentation, and I'm not going to get into great detail about it like we did back then, but some of it is Jewish such as the writings of the historian Josephus and also the Jewish Talmud, even their Talmud. You know, the Torah, the Jewish Torah, is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the Pentateuch. That's the Torah. Then they have volumes, which are called the Talmud. The Talmud is an interpretation of the Torah. Well, even in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, and Jews deny the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, they deny that he was the Messiah. But in their Talmud, they do talk about the fact that there was a man named Jesus Christ who went around doing amazing things, miraculous things. Then we found out that some documentation which proves the historicity of the Lord is Roman. For example, the writings of Pliny and Tacitus and Publius Lentulus and Suetonius and, and many others. And of course, some is Christian such as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the writings of the Apostle Paul. And then we have all the writings of the church fathers, as they call them, such as Clement, Polycarp, Ignatius, Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and on and on it goes, Augustine, and you can just name all sorts of them. Furthermore, contrary to what many people in the world who are just ignorant willfully ignorant might say archaeology is a very very good friend of Christianity and of the truth of the fact that Jesus Christ was a man of history past every archaeological find that it has ever been found has not ever once disproved anything in the Bible it has always worked the opposite it has always supported whatever is in scripture Men might think the Bible has something that's wrong in it, and then they'll dig a little deeper, as we're doing, and they'll find out, lo and behold, they, they come across some stone tablet or something that proves, oh, after all, the Bible was correct. I can think of one example. When we were in Jerusalem back in 1985, I believe it was, we saw a stone that had the name of um, Pontius Pilate on it. I think it was in Caesarea that they had dug that up. And uh, for years... Scoffers of the scoffers of the Bible had said that there was no such man as Pontius Pilate because they could find nothing in uh, the history, the archives of history, you know, that proved that he ever existed. And then when they were digging, archaeologists were digging in Caesarea, they found this stone tablet, and sure enough, it's got Pontius Pilate's name engraved on it. 
So archaeology is a friend of Christianity. You do not need to fear any of the sciences, please, because all the sciences only support what we believe, what's in the Bible. Now, what we have presented in the four biblical gospels, what we have presented there for us is actually four thematic accounts. Each writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God to have a slightly different, and here's yes, where you might want to look at that chart that you have. They were each inspired to have a slightly different specific portrait of Christ to convey to their readers. Matthew, who many Bible scholars believe was the first gospel writer to pen his gospel, and you can remember that because he's the first one. So. Basically, they do believe they were written in the order in which they're presented to us. Matthew wrote first, Mark, Luke, and then last of all, we know John was definitely last. But Matthew wrote with an emphasis upon Jesus as the sovereign king. The primary readers whom uh, Matthew had in mind were the who? Who was he basically writing to? The Jews. I think that's on, it's in there somewhere on your paper, I hope. And he particularly wanted to demonstrate to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah King who was to come from the seed of David. Now, the outstanding feature of the book of Matthew is the Lord's sermons. There are more sermons recorded in Matthew than any of the other uh, three accounts. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We discussed the, the ordination sermon when he sent his apostles out in pairs, two by two, without him on their first missionary adventure, before adventure, their first missionary venture. It was an adventure, I'm sure. Um, and before he sent them out, he gave them the ordination sermon. That was in Matthew chapter 10. And then there was the mystery kingdom parables, which the Lord presented in Matthew chapter 13. And remember what we discussed, was it two years ago, the Olivet Discourse, which is really a recap almost of the book of Revelation. And that we found in uh, Matthew, again in Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. So the outstanding feature of Matthew is his sermons. And then Mark who wrote primarily with Roman readers in mind, revealed the Lord as the obedient, suffering servant of Jehovah God, who willingly gave up his life for others in submission to God's will. Now, if you remember, there was no genealogy, no lineage of Christ given in Mark's gospel because the genealogy of a servant is not important, is it? If you're going to hire somebody to do your cleanup after Hurricane Fran in your yard, you don't care what that person's genealogy is, do you? Do you care what his ancestry is? No. What do you care about? What he can perform, right. How hard he can work. So that's why there's no genealogical record given to us in Mark. And uh, therefore, because Mark is writing to Romans who were a people of action and all they cared about is getting the job done, he, uh, his primary feature is the miracles of Christ. What can this man perform? What can he do? Actually, Mark's gospel only contains one sermon, but it contains a lot of miracles. And then Luke, who was the author of the third synoptic gospel, and if you don't, if you've never heard that word synoptic before, 
synoptic means to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They sort of saw things together in a common way. They, they viewed Christ um, primarily from his hum human side. They, they focused mostly on the humanity of Christ, whereas John's gospel focused on the deity of Christ. Um, also, Matthew, Mark, and Luke present us with the facts of Christ's life, whereas John doesn't focus so much on the facts as he does on taking those facts that the other three men wrote and interpreting them for us and showing us those facts in a way which emphasizes Christ's deity. So anyway, back to Luke. Luke presents Christ as the Son of Man. In fact, he uses that title 25 times in his account. Now, the emphasized feature of this Greek physician's gospel is the Lord's parables. The primary um, readers which Luke had in mind were, what was Luke himself? He was a Greek physician. So the primary readers he had in mind were his own people, the Greeks. Isn't that interesting how the Holy Spirit covered everybody, you know, the Jewish world through Matthew? Um, I mean, of course, the, all of them are open for everybody to read, and all scripture is profitable for everyone. But these were their primary targets. And uh, how Mark was aimed at the Romans, and here we have Luke at the Greeks, and that was pretty much the known world at that time, although there were some others, and that's who John covered. John covered the whole world. John wrote that the whole world might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so therefore, he presented Christ as the Son of God. 93% of the material which is found in John's Gospel is not found in the Synoptic Gospels. And that makes sense, too. He was the last one to write. He wrote at the end of the first century. He already had read the other fellow's accounts. And therefore, the Holy Spirit of God led him not to duplicate what they had already written. So 93% of what's found in John is not found in the other, the, the uh, what we call synoptic accounts. And there is no gene genealogy given to us in John's Gospel. And think about this, because... John presents Christ as who? Who did I say? As God, right? The Son of God as very God. And God has no genealogy. I mean, who was God's grandfather? <laughs> there wasn't one. He has always been. Always been. That's why John opens up his account by saying, in the beginning was the word. He was always there. So there's no genealogy. Um, it was written, as I said, with the entire world in mind. Now, the prominent word, in fact, in the book of John is what? You have it on your chart. Do you see it? What's the prominent word? Believe. It's, it appears 98 times in John's account. The word believe. He, he wrote that the whole world might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the emphasized feature in John's account is doctrine and that's why whenever we get into the book of John it takes us longer because it's more deep theologically so John writes not as a teacher as Matthew wrote nor as a preacher as Mark wrote you all know who really was behind Mark don't you 
Mark was not one of the original apostles, John Mark. But really what happened was Peter wrote the book of Mark through Mark. Peter spoke it sort of, you know, with the Holy Spirit, and Mark kind of penned it. So the, the gospel of Mark is, in a way, really the gospel of, of Peter. And Peter, you know, was a man of action, wasn't he? Anyway, um, so he didn't write as a teacher. John didn't write as a teacher, like Matthew, nor as a preacher, as Mark, nor as a historian. Luke wrote as a historian and historian, but John wrote as a theologian. So can you see how the four Gospels so beautifully were harmonized by the Holy Spirit so that we get this complete portrait of Christ in all of his various uh, aspects. So Matthew says to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the sovereign king prophesied in the Old Testament. And Mark says to the Romans that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the obedient servant of Jehovah God. Luke tells the Greek world of his day that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the son of man prophesied in the Old Testament and John tells the entire world that Jesus is the Savior because he is indeed in fact the very son of the living God so Matthew and John's combined emphasis if you put those two together is that Jesus is the sovereign God while Mark and Luke if you take their two and combine them we find out that he is the servant man the sovereign God and the servant man and when we take all four gospels together which is what we have been doing going on our eighth year doing uh, we find that he is 100 percent human and he is also 100 percent divine in other words he is the sinless god man who alone qualified to die for our sins for your sins and for my sins in order to set us free from our own obligation to pay for those sins ourselves. And what would we have to pay if he didn't pay it for us and we in faith believed that he paid it for us? What would we have to pay? What is the penalty for sin? It's eternal separation from God and all that is light and all that is good and all that is love. Therefore, I would say that his life is definitely and has definitely been worth studying. I know in my own life I can't even begin to tell you. I'd say a hundredfold times greater is my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ than it was seven years ago when I started this study. He, he has become so real to me. He's more real than myself. Do you sometimes find you don't really know yourself? I do. I don't really know a lot about me. I surprise myself all the time at the dumb things I do. I say, how could you do that? But, but I feel like I know him. I feel like I know him way better than I know myself. And of course, I've come to love him just infinitely better. And I hope that's true for all of you. All right, now in the two prologues to Christ's life, which were found in Luke and John, 
we discussed, first of all, the sources which were used in writing the gospel accounts. You know, how did these men find out all this information? Well, I don't have time to tell you, but you can go back and get that lesson. I think it was lesson number two or three or four or something like that. And that was in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, the prologue of Luke. And secondly, over in John's prologue to the life of Christ, we discussed the pre-incarnate or pre-flesh, pre-existent state of Christ. In other words, who he was before he took on flesh, human flesh. We learned of his person as far as his relationship with God the Father is concerned and in that study we found out that he is not only eternally God but he is equally God and he is essentially God and we learned of his power both in creation we found out that he is the creator God and in communication we found out his person in creation and in communication that he is the divine light who came to earth came to mankind in order to communicate God to us. And then we went on to learn how the 400 years of heavenly silence, which began after the last words of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. Well, before anything happened in Matthew, there were 400 years of silence, and that must have been a terrible time for the Jewish people because they were used to hearing from God through his prophets. And 400 years, I mean, just think, our country is 200 years old. That was double the age of our own country. They didn't hear a peep out of heaven. And they must have really thought God was, you know, in disfavor with them. Well, in a lot of ways he was. But finally, that long 400 years of silence from heaven was broken when God, through the angel Gabriel, announced the birth of who? Right, good. I thought I'd trick you and you'd say, Jesus, good, good. <laughs> oh, you re Oh, <laughs> forget about it. <laughs> I told you I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Announced the birth of John the Baptist to his father. Who was his father? <laughs> Zacharias, boy, you guys are smart. And that was in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. And then, of course, after that breakage of silence, then six months later, um, Gabriel came back and he made another birth announcement, and this time it was to a young virgin by the name of Mary. And this announcement to Mary was then confirmed to her broken-hearted fiancé, Joseph, following, first of all, her visit to see her elder cousin, Elizabeth, who was at that time six months pregnant with John the Baptist. We remember when Mary knocked at the door and Elizabeth opened, what happened in, it, within Elizabeth's womb? <laughs> the baby jumped. Now we saw two in um, the geneolo genealogical records of Matthew and Luke how Jesus fulfilled messianic credentials by being a direct descendant of King David in both his royal throne line through his father, his stepfather, Joseph. In other words, had there been a king on the throne of Israel at that time, it would have been Joseph. 
but because of the Jeconian curse, if you want to read about that, it's over in the book of Jeremiah, there was no king sitting on the throne of Israel after Jeconiah. So, and that curse is continuing to this day. But anyway, had there been a king, it would have been Joseph. But they had lost track of that. And um, Jesus would have been the, the heir to the royal kingdom through his stepfather, Joseph. And that was by way of David's son, Solomon. Joseph went back to David's son, King Solomon. But not only was he uh, Jesus a direct descendant of King David through his stepfather and the royal throne line, but he was also a direct descendant of King David through his mother Mary and the royal blood line, and this was through David's other son, Nathan. You know, David had many sons. Mary descended back through Nathan to David, and that was very critical because Jesus could not be the Messiah without Mary also going back to King David because of the Jeconiah curse, Jeconian curse. He wouldn't have been able to sit on the throne, but because his bloodline goes also back to David, he could. And so he circumvented the Jeconian curse. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, get that tape in the notes. And I don't know what they were, but we can look it up for you. Anyway, it's just amazing. It's incredible. No one could have been the Messiah other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one after Jesus Christ could be the Messiah. No one today could prove their genealogical record back to David because all the records were destroyed in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So no Messiah today, no professing Messiah is valid. You just immediately can dismiss him. Okay, so anyway, we found out about that prophecy, and then we also learned far, far back in our first year of this study how the many events surrounding the Lord's birth also fulfilled direct messianic prophecies. For example, that the Messiah would have a forerunner, a voice crying in the wilderness, and of course we know that he did in the person of John the Baptist, and that was in Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 5. Second, that we found out that the Lord would be born in... Bethlehem, what? Ephrata, good. Now I don't have that up there, so that was good. Now I have it. <laughs> and that was to dif differentiate the fact that it said, that's in um, Micah 5 too. Bethlehem Ephrata was to differentiate the fact that there was another Bethlehem up in the, in the north. If Jesus had been born in the other Bethlehem, he would not qualify to be the Messiah. But he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Bethlehem means house of bread. Who's the, who's the bread of life? The Lord Jesus Christ. Ephrata means fruitful. Who has borne more fruit than anyone who's ever lived? The Lord Jesus Christ. We're evidence of the fruit that he has borne. And did you know that Micah 5.2, which predicts that he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, not only predicted the birthplace of the Messiah, but, and this is what we often overlook about this prophecy, it also predicted the incarnation of the eternal God. Because it says that out of Bethlehem, Ephrata, would come forth the ruler of Israel... Quote, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, end of quote. What that incredible verse 
written by the prophet Micah, was actually predicting was that out of a little, little literal village called Bethlehem Ephrata would, would be born the everlasting one of eternity, the eternal one, God himself. So it's not only a prophecy regarding the birthplace of the Messiah, but it is a prophecy regarding the incarnation of God himself. And we also saw how the worship and the presenting of gifts by the Magi from the East, the wise men, and of course we told you at that time that no one knows that there were three. I know in your little nativity sets you have three, but there could have been many. There could have been hundreds. We don't know that there were three. That came from something else, extra biblical. But anyway, that they came to young Jesus, not when he was a baby in the manger. That's incorrect also. So take him out of your manger scene and put him two years away because when he was two years old, that's when they came to him to present their gifts. And that was a fulfillment of Psalm 72 and also Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 60, verses 3, 6, and 9. And we found out how the gold that they presented to him um, symbolized his kingship, how the frankincense symbolized his deity, and how the myrrh symbolized his death. And that is a dual fulfillment prophecy, by the way, um, in Isaiah chapter 60, which is really fascinating to study. We did talk about it then. But uh, in the end days, or in the Messianic kingdom, when Christ is ruling in Jerusalem, on the throne in Jerusalem, do you know that it predicts that the wise men again, or the people will come from the same area of uh, Saudi Arabia, again bearing gifts, but this time they will only bear gold and frankincense to the king. You know why? They're not taking myrrh because he died once for all. He will not ever die again. So this time, the second time, they will not be bringing that which symbolized his death. So that's something really neat. And we also learn how these very expensive gifts were probably divinely designed by God to provide financial support for his son. It was more than likely from the selling of those expensive gifts that Joseph had the money to finance his trip to Egypt in order to escape Herod's wrath. Some Bible scholars believe that the wealth of the gifts would actually have paid for the Lord's entire childhood right up to the point where we, he would have been able to support himself, you know, through his carpentry, carpentry skills. And that would have made sense because even though I cannot be dogmatic about this, it would be constant or consistent with the nature of God that he would not send his son into the world to be a burden on someone else such as Joseph so that really makes a lot of sense then when Joseph did bring Mary and um, Jesus out from Egypt to settle back into the land of Israel another Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled because in, in uh, Hosea 11 verse 1 and also over in Numbers 24 8 God predicted that it would be out from Egypt that he would call his son and then another messianic prophecy had predicted that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene that he would be a branch 
And the word branch means is uh, in Hebrew nezer, nezareth. That's where the word comes from. Nazareth actually literally means branch town. And of course, as we know, that is where Joseph settled was in Nazareth up in Galilee rather than going back to Bethlehem because he found out that Herod the Great's wicked son Archelaus was ruling down in um, Judea. So he went up to Galilee and his son was raised as a Nazarene. Now, it didn't make any sense to anyone who was studying back in those days the Old Testament to figure out where the Messiah would come from because if they read all these scriptures carefully they would have to conclude that he came from three different places that he would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata and yet he would come out of Egypt so it sounds almost like he'd be an Egyptian right and yet he'd be called a Nazarene now you can't be a Nazarene if you're born in Bethlehem you know so it sounded like the Messiah was going to have three places of origin Yet we know now from our advantage of hindsight that God did indeed fulfill all three of these predictions in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came out of three different places and all of them are just, it makes sense. And this is true with a lot of the prophecies that don't make sense to us right now about his second coming, things that seem confusing. When we're on the other side and we look back, they'll all fit together and we'll understand them perfectly. Now as we then continued in our look, of the Lord's early life, we then considered his silent years, which extended from the time of when he was 12 years old. Remember his 12-year-old experience in the temple when his parents couldn't find him, and then they finally found him astonishing the religious rulers with his great wisdom and his questions. We have a silent period from that time when he was 12 until he was 30 when he finally came out of obscurity in Nazareth to begin his public ministry. So during those intervening 18 years of silence, all we are told about the Lord in the Word of God is um, that he increased in wisdom, which talks about his mental state, that he increased in stature, and that, of course, speaks of his physical state, and that, that he also grew in favor with men, and that concerns his social state. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ was approximately 30 years old, well, I was supposed to have that up there. When he was approximately 30, he began his first step into public ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist and that event symbolized not his need for repentance but his commissioning for service he was consecrating or dedicating himself at that point to die upon the cross for those sinners who would believe on him and in identification with him be baptized in order to demonstrate their own death to self and resurrection of their new life in Christ. So it was at his baptism that we found out he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his messianic work. You know, when the dove came down, that was not because he hadn't had the Holy Spirit before that. It was to anoint him specifically for his messianic work. And that also was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 61, verse 1. And then after his commissioning for service, the Lord was confronted by whom? Right, Satan. 
the Holy Spirit purposely led Jesus in Matthew 4 1 it tells us into the wilderness in order to confront his age-old enemy that old serpent the devil in order to demonstrate three important truths this is why the spirit led him there on purpose first of all it was to prove or demonstrate that by way of Christ's victory over Satan Uh, over his temptations to sin Jesus would demonstrate his worthiness to reign over the kingdom which his father would give to him secondly it demonstrated that by way again of his victory over Satan that Jesus was sinless and we talked about the fact that he is impeccable we talked about the doctrine of impeccability could Jesus have sinned Could he have sinned, or could he not have sinned? Was there no way he could have sinned? Well, if you'd like to find out, get the tape. But that's called the doctrine of impeccability. And um, he is, by the way, impeccable. He could not have sinned. God cannot sin. There are some things God cannot do. God cannot sin. And uh, so anyway, demonstrated his sinlessness and his subsequent worthiness to redeem mankind as savior to redeem them from satan who has usurped this world and third by way of his victory over satan he demonstrated a pattern for victory for all of those who would follow him calling themselves christians and that pattern by the way for victory centered on holding with complete trust and obedience holding to the word of god you know you and i as christians can have victory over Satan and we can have it by following the the Lord's leading how did he have victory over Satan through the weapon of the word of God the sword of the spirit he every time Satan attacked him what did he say it is written and then he would say what's written that's why it's so important to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him and then after calling out for service his first six disciples Andrew John Peter James Philip and Nathaniel the Lord actually began his public ministry by attending what what was the first thing he attended very good a wedding in Cana which was a small Galilean village about eight miles Uh, from his hometown of Nazareth it was interesting to realize that the very first institution which God created way back in the Garden of Eden was the institution of marriage and it was likewise the very first event which God in flesh Jesus Christ sanctioned with his divine presence in his earthly public ministry as well as the first place event, a marriage, at which he performed a miracle. So um, I'm sure, I hope, this tells you that marriage is very important to the Lord. We're his bride, he's our groom. Marriage is a very important institution, and he wants us to take it seriously, doesn't he? Now, it was at the wedding in Cana, which I'm sure you all know, even those of you that weren't with us, that he um, turned water into wine. And that was a creative miracle. 
he made wine without any seeds, without any vines, without any grapes, without any soil, without any sunlight, without any harvesters, without any wine press. Now you try to do that, okay? He did it, and that proved that he is the creator God. His wine was created from nothing, and that is called a creative miracle, just like he made all that is from nothing. I do believe in the Big Bang Theory, don't you? God said, let it be, and bang, it was. <laughs> now, all of the Lord's miracles, and there were many of them, I think, throughout his three and a half years of his ministry, were for the sole purpose of authenticating both his person and his proclamation his message the miracles of christ testified not only as to who he is but they gave their authority to what he had to say so his miracles beginning with that first one at the wedding in cana demonstrated to us his absolute authority over over every single realm of life they proved his authority over nature when he stilled the sea when he caused fish to jump into nets you know etc over satan he was always casting demons out um, of people over sickness it uh, demonstrated his authority over every type of disease over spiritual physical mental mental and emotional aspects of people humanity and it even demonstrated his authority over our worst enemy death itself when he raised three people from the dead and then himself the fourth now as we studied each of the lord's miracles we considered what that particular miracle revealed to us about his person and about his authority the miracle of turning water into wine is a miracle over nature and therefore it is a creative miracle and it tells us that jesus christ the person of the lord jesus christ is none other than the person of the creative God himself. Jesus Christ is the one who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Well then, after a short stay in Capernaum, the Lord and his disciples went to Jerusalem. This is the first time to Jerusalem during his public ministry. And he went there in order to celebrate the Passover. And it was at that time that he fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 3, verses 1 to 3, which states that the Messiah would come suddenly to his temple in order to purify it. Isn't that interesting? Do you know what he did when he went into that temple that day? you remember? I'll give you a hint. He purified it, all right. You know, this was um, what Satan was trying to do in the temptation when Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Remember that temptation and said, jump, and the angels will catch you? What Satan was trying to get him to do was to fulfill Malachi 3, verse 1, that the Messiah will come suddenly to his temple. He wanted the people to know for sure that this guy jumping from there and being caught by angels was the Messiah so that there would be no doubt that he was the Messiah. They all accept him, put a crown on him, and they wouldn't take him to the cross. That's what Satan was trying to do there, was fulfill that prophecy. They did, And that's what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting that their Messiah would come suddenly to the temple in some spectacular way just like that they didn't imagine in their worst dreams that the messiah would come suddenly out of obscurity 
from Nazareth, despicable Nazareth, and that he would come and make this cord of whips and chase out all their, their greedy money changers and animal sellers. So they didn't recognize him coming that way. They said, who is this guy? Get rid of him. But anyway, that was a fulfillment of Malachi 3, verses 1 to 3, and he did purify it, which is what that prophecy said. And he said, why have you made my father's house a den of thieves? And also in that same action, he was fulfilling another prophecy found in Psalm 69, verse 9, which predicted that the Messiah would have a zeal for God's house, the temple. And you know, the religious leaders didn't see that. They didn't know that he was fulfilling that prophecy, but who did? His six disciples. If you read the passage, it says they remembered that David had written that the Messiah would have a zeal for the house of God. Now, the Lord's actions, as we know, and this he cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, this time, and then again the last week of his life, on Monday of the last week. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But um, that the, his action really, really stirred up the anger of the religious rulers who were the direct beneficiaries of the temple bazaar business. In fact, what was it called? Annas's bazaar. Annas was the high priest, the co-reigning high priest with Caiaphas. This was his operation, and he was profiting greatly from this little booth-selling business he had going on in the temple. So they were upset, and they approached Jesus to question his authority to do such a thing. And in their blind and willful ignorance, they asked him for a what? Do you remember? There it is. They asked him for a sign. Isn't that dumb? What had he just given them? He gave them two very clear signs in his fulfillment of messianic prophecy, that he came suddenly to his temple to purify it, and that he had such a zeal for his father's house. They knew they were wrong. They knew they were wicked. They knew they were ripping the people off. But they dared to ask him for a sign. And his answer to their request was a prediction of his own upcoming death and resurrection. You know, the crucifixion didn't take the Lord by surprise. Right from the very beginning of his ministry, he talked about the fact that they would destroy him, but in three days he would rise from the dead. What did he say to them? He gave them a sign, all right. He said, destroy this temple, but they took him literally, thought he was talking about Herod's temple. He said, destroy this temple, speaking about the true temple of God, which was his body at that time, and in three days I will raise it up. That's in John 2.19. But they, of course, mocked him because they said, ho, 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 what a joke. You're going to raise this in three days when it's taken us 40, uh, 46 years at that point to build. It was still being built. It was not finished until 64 ADs. It took a total of 80 years to build the temple. It was only in existence in its completed form for six years, and it was totally destroyed in 70 AD. And I think that's neat because it was man's temple. It wasn't God's temple, and it only lasted for six years, which is man's number. But anyway, you're going to build in three days what it took us 80 years to build? Ha ha, what a joke. And then the Lord made another forecast regarding his death. Oh, boy. Well, this is going to be continued, I can see. Um, He made another prediction regarding his death that very evening while he was having a discussion with a nighttime visitor named, what? Nicky, remember Nicodemus. And in his very critical new birth discussion with that searching Pharisee, 
Jesus even predicted, he not only predicted to the Jews earlier that day that he would be killed and in three days raise up, but that night he told this Pharisee how he would be killed. Because he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, remember that brazen serpent that was lifted up on a pole that was like the form of a cross back in the wilderness when the people were grumbling and God sent fiery serpents to bite them and the people were dying and Moses intervened on their behalf and, he, and, and God said if you'll lift up a brazen serpent and put it on a pole all the people have to do is look at it in faith that it will heal them and they won't die that's a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ because all we have to do in faith is look upon him on the cross he's not there anymore but remember back to when he was and know and believe that he died to take away that bite of sin from the serpent from us and we will live we won't die. We won't have eternal separation. We won't suffer the second death. It's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in that serpent, that brazen serpent. That's what he was telling Nicodemus. He was telling Nicodemus, really, that he was going to be crucified because at that time the way of punishment was to be lifted up on a cross. So he knew how he was going to die. He was not surprised when he was taken and crucified. But the most important truth which Jesus revealed in that very famous discussion with Nicodemus was the Lord's words, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A person must be born again if they want to see heaven. A person must believe, as he also went on to say in that same discussion, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. I'm not even halfway through, but I want to stop here because it's time and ask you a question. Have you been born again? Would you be honest and search your soul this morning and sincerely with open face before the Lord ask yourself have I truly been born again or have I just been deceiving myself all these years thinking that I'm really a Christian when I'm not there are so many people in churches today who think they're really Christians and one day they're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment and he's going to say these horrible, horrible words. He's going to say, I never knew you. You see, what he wants is that intimate relationship with you. He doesn't want your religion. He doesn't want your church attendance. He doesn't want your ancestry. He doesn't want your good works. They're filthy rags to him. He wants to know you. He wants to have that personal relationship with you. And you ask, how do I get that? It's so simple, even a child can do it. You just must be born again. You must come to him as a child. Except a man come to me as a child, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That means that you, you must just be open and honest and and just in simple faith, like those people had to do when they looked at that serpent on the cross, just look at it with even a mustard seed of faith and believe that that will heal you. Believe that Jesus Christ up on the cross was dying for your sins. That he really was a man of history past. A man who was really God. God incarnate in flesh who came down here 
to live, to show us, communicate God to us so that we could know God and we could know how to get to God. And then he went to the cross willingly, knowing he was going there all along. He was born to die, and he knew it, that he would go there on that cross to suffer for your sins so that you would never have to pay the penalty of eternal separation from God the Father and from him and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. And I am so sorry. I I repent of my sins. I want to turn over my life to you, to your will. I don't want to live my life my way anymore. I want to learn all about you. I want to grow closer to you. I want to study your word so I can learn to love you and to know you better and to be Christ-like and to know with assurance as all the rest of these women in here know that one day when they die, when they pass over the Jordan River, as your husband just did, that they're going to be in eternity with God and that one day we'll all be reunited again. I mean, that's the only thing in this life that's important because life is like a vapor. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. The only thing that is important is where you're going to spend eternity. And you don't know when you step out these doors what might happen to you. You might not see the evening. But you need to know where you're going to spend eternity. To be absent from the body, if you're a Christian, is to be present with the Lord. It's just that fast. I really don't know why the whole world isn't Christian. (laughs) Because what have you got to lose? I mean, you've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. So I ask you, are you born again? If you're not, would you just please today get before him with open face and confess your sins and ask him into your heart? Because he will come. He promises that he will come in and sup with you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love his word, which tells us everything about him and tells us with assurance when we look at it honestly and not with blinders on that he really was God incarnate, that he really was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy and that he really was the one who loved us enough to die for our sins father thank you for these women thank you for their attention thank you for this ministry we just love you and we thank you for everything that you've given to us and we pray that should there be one here among us lord that today they would take this message seriously and that they would get before you on their knees and just say lord jesus come into my heart I want to live for you, and I want to die knowing that I'll be with you forever. And we will be sure to give you all the praise and the glory, for we pray in his precious, wonderful, glorious name, the name above all other names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.